Uh, good morning, everyone. We're reading on page 827, um, Paul's letter to the Christians at Ephesus, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 1 to 10. And you'll probably agree, one of the best passages in the Bible, in my opinion. Okay, if I can say that. Made alive in Christ. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by faith you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to good do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Amen. Father in heaven, uh, we want to thank you for your Bible and we thank you that it alone gives us the words, uh, the revelation of you that uh, equips us for uh, salvation and for godly living. So we pray for ourselves, we pray for the uh, children in Sunday school, we pray for all the ministries of the church that happen during the week where your word is thoughtfully taught and considered. We pray for ourselves now that uh, you would, by your spirit, be <clears throat> enlightening the darkness of our hearts and our souls and helping us to understand more of who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and what a great God you are. We pray these things in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Lying is a normal thing for children to do. In fact, if your three-year-old starts telling you uh, fibs, then that's not a bad thing <clears throat> because it means that he or she is developing into a normal human being. I read that uh, in an article in the Sydney Morning Herald just last Tuesday. What do you think about that? Do you think it's right? Well, the logic actually made sense because they say that if you catch your three-year-old uh, lying about something which they did that they shouldn't have done, then that actually proves that their thinking skills have developed at a normal pace. Uh, your, I can see the teachers nodding in agreement. <laughs> it tells us that your child is now smart enough to realise at least three things. Number one, that what they did deserves punishment. Number two, that you may not actually know that they in fact did it. And number three, that if they deny it, they might avoid punishment. When you think about it, it's quite impressive. It's quite complex thinking. Uh, because the child has to, uh, firstly, they have to hide the truth. Uh, secondly, they have to make up an alternative reality. Uh, thirdly, they have to tell you about it. And fourthly, they've got to remember what they've told you. So it's quite complex. 
So children telling lies, that's just normal human development. It's, it's a good thing. It's, it's healthy. And the article then goes on to give you a couple of practical tips as to how you can train your children to not do it, to not tell lies. And I'm sure that some of those tips might have some value, but the reality is that children grow up into adults, don't they? And as we think about the behaviour of adults, we realise that there actually must be more to it than just normal cognitive development. Because our ability to act in a way that benefits ourselves, well, it's not just about our thinking skills, is it? There's something which is deep in our hearts. There's something about our desires. There's something about, our, about what's precious to us which motivates us to utilise our God-given abilities in a self-centred way. The truth is that you don't have to train children to be selfish. You've got to train them to be unselfish. And the truth is that as we become adults, we don't actually seem to become less selfish. Uh, far from it. In fact, we become better at it and with our more developed cognitive skills, we become more sophisticated at the ways in which we express our self-centeredness. And we, society realises that it's not necessarily a good thing. And so we have things in place to try to circumvent people's selfishness and try to change people's behaviour. Uh, but yet, despite our best efforts to change things through um, better education, through... Uh, the greater um, uh, uh, development of wealth uh, through a more sophisticated justice system, we can control it in one area, but it then it just pops up in another area. And one thing which we can't do is we find that we cannot eliminate self-centred behaviour. In fact, it just becomes more sophisticated and more difficult to deal with. And so when your three-year-old starts telling lies, does that mean that he or she is just developing into a normal human being? Well, how do you think the Bible would answer that, by the way? The Bible would say yes. The Bible would say that that's true. The Bible would say, yep, that is what, it's normal in terms of being a human being. Not just because of brain development reasons, but the Bible goes deeper into the, into the very heart of the human problem, the spiritual problem which we are all born into. And friends, it is this spiritual problem and the Bible's solution to this spiritual problem that is in fact the most important issue that any one of us needs to deal with. And to understand this issue, we can do no better than to turn to today's passage, which I would invite you to do in Ephesians chapter 2. You know, when Paul, the apostle, wrote to the Christian church in, in Ephesus, he reminded them of what it means to live our lives our way. And he did so not by pointing to the rest of the world, not by pointing to how other people live, but rather by reminding them of what their lives used to be like before Christ. 
Let's have a look at that. In verses 1 to 3, Paul says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also, so Paul includes himself and them, lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Now let's unpack that for a few moments, shall we? How does Paul describe what these people used to be? He says that they used to be dead doesn't he? They used to, that's a stark word, isn't it? That's a very, very strong word. They used to be dead in their transgressions and sins. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I think transgressions and sins, aren't, aren't they the same thing? I mean, you know, is he repeating himself there? What, what's the diff, why does he use two words? What's the difference between transgressions and sins? Well, this week, we people in New South Wales have been thinking about football since Wednesday night. And uh, I think there's a couple of interesting football analogies here because uh, think about a game of football, to transgress uh, might mean that you've got the ball, you're running with the ball, but you step over the sideline. You step over the sideline, uh, you're, you're out, aren't you? So you've transgressed, you've stepped over a particular boundary. Uh, or to, um, to sin in the Bible means uh, to fall short of the glory of God. Uh, and I guess that that would be like you're, you're running with a ball, you're, you're near, the, near the try line, but you're tackled just before, just short of the try line. And so you miss the mark. You don't quite, you fall short of what you're aiming for. And the Bible teaches us that when we live our way, that, that we actually step over God's boundaries and that we fall short of his glory. No matter how hard we try, we always come short of the glory of God. And why is it that we live this way? Well, it's be, it goes back to the beginning, doesn't it? It's because we are descendants of Adam and Eve. It goes right back to the Garden of Eden itself. Thank you very much. Okay, <clears throat> good to know you're on the you're, you're on the ball there, Jacob. <laughs> uh, I understand that when a uh, branch is cut from a tree, you can correct me off about this if I'm wrong later. But when a branch is cut off from a tree, sometimes the branch will continue to sprout forth little green shoots. Is that right? So it it actually looks like it's alive. Uh, but the reason it does that is because it's still got sap in it. It looks like it's alive. It gives the appearance of life when, in fact, it is dead because it is cut off from the root. And in our natural state, um, we can look like we are very much alive. But our relationship with God is dead. Uh, the, and, friends, when we live like that, uh, what Paul says here is that we are living 
exactly how God's enemy, Satan, wants us to live. He is the, the ruler of the, of the air, the, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He's the ruler of, of, uh, of, of all of those who follow him. Uh, God's enemy, Satan, wants us to live in this way. And when we live in that way, then he's our master. He wants us to feel free to step over the line. He wants us to think that true life means, as Paul says here in verse 3, gratifying the cravings of the sinful nature and following its desires and its thoughts. That if you do that, then you're truly living life. Using our advanced thinking capacity to satisfy not our creator, but to satisfy ourselves. And so it's like Adam and Eve, isn't it? It's like Adam and Eve. It's like we're saying to God, we're really happy to, to have all of the good things that you give. It's just that we don't actually want you. We don't want you. We think that we are alive. But as Paul says, not only are we dead in our relationship with God, but we are also objects of God's wrath. Now, you don't uh, win too many popularity uh, contests by talking about God's anger and God's wrath and, and hell. But it's something which we must talk about. Uh, because unless we understand God's wrath, we will never understand God's love. You see, God is an angry God. God is a God who judges. And there's good reason for that, because God is perfect in his righteousness. God is perfect in his justice. And that means that as a perfectly just God, he simply cannot allow our sins and transgressions to go unpunished. And when you think about it, the punishment kind of fits the crime, doesn't it? We spend our lives ignoring God. We spend our lives saying, we're happy to have all of the good things that you give. We just kind of don't want you. And so on the day of judgment, God says, well, that's fine. Uh, I'll back off. I'll back off forever. Now, the Bible uses various unpleasant um, images to describe and help us to get a feeling for what hell is like. Images like fire. Images like weeping and gnashing of teeth. One particular image is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 in verses 8 and 9 where the picture is that of being shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power uh, for all time, forever. Now that's a frightening reality. Eternal separation from our creator. And not only from our creator, but eternal separation from all of God's good gifts of everything that is enjoyable in life, everything that makes us human. It's like having the complete freedom to gratify the cravings of our sinful natures, but without anything by which to gratify those cravings. That's hell. You know, there's a beautiful word which is in verse 4. It's got three letters. I wonder if you can see a beautiful letter in verse 4 with three letters, and it's not the word God. Uh, it begins with B. Anyone see that word? 
What's the most beautiful three-letter word with the... But. But is, some, but is an incredible word because but gives options. But says it doesn't need to be this way. Paul says here, we were by nature objects of God's wrath, but, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy has made us alive with Christ. We were dead in our transgressions and sins, but now we are alive. And why? Well, it's because God is not only a God of justice who must punish sins and transgression, but he's also a God of love, a God who is described here as being rich in mercy. Now, mercy is a very powerful word, isn't it? It's an extraordinary word. It's a word which brings great relief. You know, think about it. When, what does it mean? When, when a person in authority is merciful to someone who has done the wrong thing, um, what does that mean? Well, I take it that it means that they do not punish the person for what they have done. They do not punish the person with that which they deserve. Now, that's mercy. But how can God not punish our sins and yet also be perfectly just? You know, throughout the ages, people have tried to solve this, uh, this problem through religion. And religion doesn't work. Uh, let me explain what I mean by that. The idea that if I, if I perform certain religious rituals and ceremonies, that if I do that, then God will be merciful to me, that I can somehow earn his love earn his acceptance by doing these things that somehow I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. Now that's what many religions teach. <clears throat> that's what many people believe. Even not just in the formal religions, just in folk religion. That's kind of what people believe. But can a dead person do anything to bring themselves back to life? Obviously, no. We were dead in our sins, but God has made us alive with Christ. By his death, Jesus has paid the penalty which we deserve for our sins, and by his resurrection, he's given us new life, a life that goes forever. Now, that's mercy. Another very powerful word is the word grace. Uh, in God's great work of saving us, Grace is the flip side of mercy. Um, <clears throat> think about it. If mercy means that God does not give us the punishment which we do deserve, grace is the flip side of that. Grace means that God does give us the forgiveness which we do not deserve. Yeah, saying the same thing twice but in different ways, it kind of covers all angles, doesn't it? Because... The, the, the question that needs to come to our mind is this. If that is the case, what is it that, that we do to contribute to our salvation? And the answer is nothing. We're dead. We're cut off from God. There's nothing we can do to contribute to our salvation. And so therefore, 
Who is it who gets all of the glory for our salvation? Well, have a look at verse 6. In verse 6, Paul says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now, when... God raised Jesus from the dead and seated Jesus at the right hand of at his right hand in heaven. What attribute of God did that show? When he's taken Jesus who was dead, he's raised him from death, and he's put he's placed him at his right hand in heaven. What does that tell us about God? What what attribute does it show? Well, in another part of the scripture. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that it, it is by his great power that he exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus shows God's power. It shows God's power that he's conquered death. It shows God's power to all of the, uh, to, to everyone, including, the, um, the, uh, including Satan himself. But God has done the same thing for us. God has raised us from death and God has actually given us a place in heaven in the age to come. And that's what Paul is saying there because he says that uh, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So that in the age to come, the fact that people like us who were dead in our trespasses and sins, the fact that, that we actually have a place in heaven, not only shows God's great power, but it also shows just how incredibly gracious God is, how merciful God is, how loving he is, how kind he is, that he's done that for undeserving sinners such as us. Paul um, sums it up very nicely in verses 8 and 9. Let's have a look at that. Verse 8. In verse 8, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, you might be able to imagine someone saying, well, yep, um, Christ died to pay for my sins. Uh, but guess what? I was smart enough. I, was, I had advanced cognitive abilities enough. I was uh, religious enough. I was good enough to hear that gospel and to respond by putting my faith uh, in Jesus. Can you imagine someone saying that? Perhaps maybe so, yeah. Maybe, maybe not as bluntly as that. But you see, Paul says no. <laughs> Paul says, no, no, you, we were spiritually dead. And the whole thing of what Christ has done on the cross, the whole thing, even including your response of faith, is actually a gift from God. You were dead. It's only because God, by his Spirit, has entered into your heart 
and has given you life that you've made that response of faith. And so who gets all of the glory? Do we get some of the glory? No. Who gets all of the glory? God. He has done great things for us. He has saved us so that we are not people who are dead in our sins. Satan is not our master. We do not live in order to gratify the cravings of our sinful nature. Uh, in verse 10, Paul says that we are not Satan's workmanship. He says we are now God's workmanship. And I like that word workmanship. The, it could also be in, translated as the word masterpiece. That we are now God's masterpiece. That he has recreated us. He has created us. We've been born again. We've been made anew in Christ Jesus. And the reason is so that we will do good works. So that we will now uh, walk in his way rather than walking in the ways of the world. That we would live uh, a life that honours God, not in order to achieve merit, in order to gain a place in heaven, but rather because we've already got that place in heaven. And out of a grateful heart, we now want to walk in God's ways and give glory and honour to him in the things which we do, in the way that we live. And in fact, we'd only be doing things which God has already prepared in advance for us to do as we seek to live his way. Now, <clears throat> during the time of the Reformation of the church in the 1500s, for centuries the gospel... Uh, had been smothered by uh, religious false teaching in many ways. But uh, one which I'll draw out is that the church had taught things like you can get your dead relatives a place in heaven by paying money to the church. That could make our treasurer happy. joking. Actually, we were doing some door knocking around Port Macquarie a few years ago and uh, uh, someone reported to me that they'd knocked on a door. They said to a fellow, we're from the Presbyterian Church, we just want to invite you to a carol's night. And the fellow said, oh, look, no, that's, that's okay. No, you don't have to talk to me. I'm, I'm all right. Um, and Presbyterian Church did just say, well, look, don't worry about it. Uh, I've left some money for your church in my will. <laughs> Hasn't turned up yet. <laughs> But you see, there's this folk religion. A lady in the nine o'clock service spoke to me at morning tea and she said that uh, she used to work for a lawyer and she, one, thing that, one thing that was happened that has been seared and scorched into her mind and her heart was a fellow who came uh, to have his will finalised and he bequeathed um, a certain amount of money uh, to the church for the, quote, repose of my soul, to pay for my soul. And uh, in the 16th century, this is what the church taught. Uh, it's why there's so many fabulous buildings in Rome. 
under the name of the church. They had a they were pretty smart in those days. They a bit smarter than our politicians these days with the marketing uh, that uh, goes on. They'd they'd worked out a slogan uh, that they that went like this, and I quote: "As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs." It's a nice little jingle, isn't it? But the reformers had a much better slogan. It went like this. By grace alone, through faith alone, to God alone be the glory. That's a better slogan, isn't it? It kind of captures the essence of this passage, doesn't it? It kind of captures everything that God has done for us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is rich in mercy. We thank you for your love and your grace, which were so costly. And we thank you, Father God, that you have done so for sinners such as us, that in the coming age that your great kindness will be shown to all, that you would be glorified. Father, we pray for ourselves now that we would not be people who uh, walk in the ways of this world, gratifying the cravings of our sinful natures, but rather that of grateful hearts that we would seeking, be seeking to walk in your ways, to live lives that please and honour you, that you might be glorified even in us. And these things we pray in Jesus' name.